0: Hi again i'm jack lessonberry and welcome to a new year and welcome back to politics and prejudices the podcast this is sort of an evolution of the column i wrote and the radio commentaries i did for many years so i hope you enjoy and keep listening you can also catch up with both my writing and any essays and podcasts you might have missed on my website and blog lessonberryinc.com it's ink as an ink pen we have an especially important topic today so please settle back and listen and stay tuned afterwards for my signature essay i hope you enjoy and if you do please go to my website and subscribe. The Price is Right its free. Now for our topic. Is our American democracy in danger? We have a president, Donald Trump, who often doesn't appear to understand the nature of the presidency or his traditions, nor does he seem to understand the central role of our Constitution. Mr. Trump also doesn't seem to recognize that in our system, the president is not just a political leader, he's the head of state, the symbol of our nation and its heritage to both our people and the world. It's important to note that I'm not talking here about his specific positions on the issues, about his understanding of the nature of his job and our democracy. Of course, we may get into talking about his positions as well, but that's sort of the core issue here today. And beyond that, how much of a threat is all this to our system and democracy in America? Today, I've asked very, three very intelligent people from widely different backgrounds to examine these questions, introducing them in alphabetical order. Paul Eisenstein on my immediate left, not necessarily politically, is the founder, publisher, (laughs) and editor-in-chief of the DetroitBureau.com, all one word, also known as the voice of the automotive world. He's been covering all phases of the automotive industry on every continent, every medium for more than 35 years. He's been a pioneer in internet publishing. Jamin Jordan on my right is a historian, author, and educator, who also runs the Black Scroll Network, which conducts tours of historic African-American sites both locally and nationally, is a real expert on African-American life in Detroit. And Bob Sedler is a distinguished professor of constitutional law at Wayne State University in Detroit, a frequent writer on constitutional questions who's argued before the US Supreme Court on more than one occasion. All of these men are extremely tuned to what's happening from their different perspective, and I want to start by asking the central question, is our democracy, in fact, in serious nature? Bob, I'll let you start since you're, after all, a constitutional law professor.
1: We have a constitutional system It's an 18th century constitution It was supposed to operate without political parties. So we superimpose a very strong two-party political system, which has become ever more partisan. As you point out, we have a president who doesn't follow any of the conventions that other presidents have. That said, presidents come, presidents go. The Constitution endures. Congress manages to appropriate funds to keep the federal government running. They manage to enact a law or two. The federal government keeps going on. The national parks are open. Uh, I think we just pay too much attention to current controversies. We have a system that has worked for us for over 200 years. It has its crises, and I've been through the Nixon impeachment, the Clinton impeachment, the 2000 election. And again, the Constitution endures.
0: Now well, Jim and Jordan, when that Constitution was written, folks like yourself weren't even seen as people. That's right. So I'm wondering, from your perspective, do you think we're in more serious trouble than we've been before? So, yeah, there's,
2: there's a, his, a history of the Constitution being less than democratic for a lot of people who live within the United States. And, of course, African Americans for many years weren't considered citizens of the United States. And when the Constitution was written, they're really written out of it as citizens. And they're only included, um, without using the word slavery, but they're included as people who are enslaved. You don't actually get the word slavery until the 13th Amendment, which makes slavery unconstitutional. That's just the irony of the Constitution. But uh, So you have that limitation of the Constitution being fully democratic for everyone at its founding. However, even though uh, I'm hearing what Bob is saying, that, you know, the Constitution endures beyond presidents, presidents and other folks who are part of the United States government have done some really horrific things, even though their term has gone away. But the effects of that we're still living with. And so um, when we think of presidents, Andrew Jackson, for instance, so when Andrew Jackson is the president and the Supreme Court makes a ruling that recognizes the five civilized tribes, particularly the Cherokee and Georgia, as a nation. And Native the, Americans. Yeah, Native Americans, that they should be treated as a nation. Well, Andrew Jackson says, well, Marshall made that ruling, but let him come down and enforce it. Right. And so we still get the uh, Indian Removal Act and the, the Trail of Tears while he's president. He's violating the Supreme Court. He's violating the Constitution. He's going off on his own. And so now we have a president that kind of seems to, in his rhetoric, And in some of his actions, he's taking a cue from people like Andrew Jackson. And even um, when Roosevelt interns uh, Japanese-Americans during World War II, they're in violation of the Constitution. And those ramifications, even though Roosevelt is no longer the president and Andrew Jackson, of course, won't be president forever, the ramifications of those um, um, presidents acting like dictators still lives with us, and the, the effect of it is still felt.
0: I, I, Paul, Paul Eisenstein, you see the world, of course, from an automotive perspective, but you're all over the country all the time with all yeah, those auto shows. You talk to a lot of business
3: people. Yeah, I want to follow up on a couple of okay. points here. If you look historically, presidents have always run afoul of the Constitution. It's a natural nature right. of, of any good government system that you push the boundaries, uh, and The Alien and Sedition Act, which goes back to the earliest days when John Adams, one of the Founding Fathers, 1798, right, uh, threatened basically the the First Amendment, free speech. It was a First Amendment for a very big reason, and yet one of our first presidents challenged it. Uh, So, and of course, it was Thomas Jefferson, Mm -hmm. who we really saw the rise of parties, so the partisanship was intense In that period, and we forget that in the 1800s, uh, media were as divisive and partisan as they are today. So we have a historical precedent for much of what's happening. What is particularly unusual and what's worrisome to me is that it is all coming together simultaneously in some very bad ways. Uh, The partisanship has reached a point where it's fracturing public respect both for the political system and for the Constitution itself, and we have particularly one party right now, I'm not trying to be partisan, but we can't help it when we see a Republican Party that seems quite willing to know that we are
0: really threatening the
3: fundamentals of America, never mind just traditions.
0: You don't have Republican leaders going to President Trump as they did to President Nixon and saying you can't do this.
3: Right. Plus you also have a party that's saying we're going to coordinate mm-hmm. our impeachment efforts <laughs> in violation of, our, of the Constitution and the oath they take uh, to work with the White House to protect it. So there's all sorts of things that are happening here plus a president that is Frankly, my personal belief is that he is mentally incapacitated i mean he he shows that more and more uh, well, David Trot said that the Republican congressman from Michigan who
0: quit a couple of terms yeah <laughs>
3: so so when you watch all of this happening simultaneously, right. the damage that's being done internationally, you know you raise the questions about complicity with foreign governments and so on. I think that the the assault coming from so many ways at such a level that there comes a point where tradition and constitution hold, but I wonder if we're not fracturing things, mm-hmm. especially with the ability to break
1: public sentiment.
3: Mm-hmm. Bob, what do you think?
1: Well, again, I agree fully. We live with the consequences of a long and tragic history of racism in the United States. I've called it in my writings the social history of of racism. It traces back to slavery and to its aftermath. Genocide began on the Cherokee Trail of Tears, as Jim points out. And I've done a lot of civil rights, civil liberties litigation over the years. And the answer is you win some and you lose some and you keep going. It is one of the strengths of our democracy that we do have elections every two years for Congress and every four years for the president. We do have a court system where courts do apply the Constitution. Sometimes we like the results. Sometimes we don't. But here's what I worry about. When we were kids, you're just a young guy, but when we, we're all over
0: 60. When we <laughs> were kids, our parents might not have voted for Dwight Eisenhower, they might have not have voted for Harry Truman, but you respected the president. Yeah, absolutely. And that seems to have been lost, and this president seems to do. You never thought of a president. You thought of a president maybe starting a bad war, but you didn't think of a president sitting in the Oval Office sending out tweets about Meryl Streep. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, it's, mm-hmm.
1: what do you think? Mm-hmm. You know, we had an election. <laughs> we don't vote for the president. We vote for electors. It's an 18th century concept, but that is how we elect the president. We, we do have checks and balances. Uh, the president cannot get the kind of legislation that he wants. The result is that there's gridlock, which, interestingly enough, is what the framers wanted. They were men of the states. They feared the new federal government. And they did not want any legislation unless there would be a national consensus. It's very difficult to get a consensus today because of the partisanship. Similarly, as I said, impeachment was the way that the framers thought we could remove a president who abused power. The Senate takes an oath. That's in the Constitution. Mitch McConnell says, but I'm not impartial. So... Like in so many contexts, our 18th century Constitution doesn't work the way it was supposed to work because of partisan politics. And the framers were incredible egotists. They made the Constitution extremely difficult to amend. We've only had 27 amendments, 10 of which were the Bill of Rights. Right, and two, so, and two of which canceled each other out. Right, so okay. we, we have to live... <laughs> under this 18th century constitution with our two-party political system. It's not a good system. Uh, I remember years ago I was at a conference with the newly rating uh, South Africa. It was about what kind of democracy was South Africa going to have. And I said, you don't want to use our system. <laughs> it's, not a, it's a system that we have to live with. So I can only say, this is, what, this is how we do it, and we have to make the best of it. Jamin Jordan, uh, most people think
0: that Trump has stirred up a lot of things, has made racism more, you can agree or disagree with me. Anti-Semitism as well. Anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, you're black, we come, we're, the three of us are either Jewish or have a Jewish spouse. Um, do you think that, that he stirred up something that's going to outlast him?
2: So, um, first, he's, he, he's, he's really stoking something that already existed, so we know right. he didn't invent it, right. um, but he definitely is riding the waves of it, um, and he's purposefully doing it. And what he has done is he's created a really a substrata of, of supporters who do not care about anything else he does. So he can violate um, laws, he can violate the Constitution, he can violate the norms right. of the American presidency, and this group of people who have so much animus towards Jewish people, towards Arabs, towards people, Latinos, towards African-Americans, towards anybody who they consider other, love him so much and see him as the champion of the downtrodden white man, they will support him despite that. And, and that, to me, is pretty dangerous. I'm really kind of following Paul on that. That's really kind of dangerous because what I see is for his opposition, the Democrats, The the people who vote for Democrats still have all these debates about, is this the best guy? Is this the, is his policies correct? While for his group of people, they don't care about any of that. They don't care about his policies, um, his tax policies, his military policies. What they care about is this animus that he's stoking. They like that so much that they'll support him no matter what. And that is really a problem. And that is really a danger to democracy, maybe on a scale beyond what we've seen historically.
3: I, I have a, uh, a neighbor out at a cottage we have out near Pinckney, which is, of course, Trump country. Right. In fact, was even where the uh, the Klan mm-hmm. was headquartered not that many decades ago. And I, when I talk to him, very bright man, but he comes from the mindset, I want the system to be smashed so we can build it up again. So he likes Trump from that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of anti, mm-hmm. dash, and then fill in the blank that Trump is connecting, not necessarily all agree, Mm -hmm. but you have anti-immigrants, you have anti-Semites, anti-black, anti-big government, anti-Democrat, anti and all these folks feel that he is, they like the rage he's kicking up Mm -hmm. for various reasons. But one of the things that concerns me particularly, and and it ties to this, is that he has taken to a, um, astounding degree, what we started seeing with two former presidents. First of all, Nixon, and then even more effectively with Reagan. And that was the combining yeah. of religion and politics in the United States. I think perhaps the most dangerous thing that has happened to democracy over the last half century was the, the basically legitimizing of the evangelical right to have a very strong seat at the table. Now, we've always seen religion have a role. In fact, we forget how strong religion was in social and politics in the 1800s. But this particular niche of people who have all sorts of particular issues, uh, whether it be anti-Semitism or whatever, and we see that now, and the great irony is that you have people who are literally calling him the second savior, mm-hmm. yet he yes. is a man who has affairs with porn mm-hmm. stars, mm-hmm. multiple wives. His personal and so behavior
0: I... is about as, as Christian as I'm representative <laughs> of a, an Olympic sprinter. I mean, <laughs> right? So, Kevin, so, why is why do Christians tolerate you come <laughs> well, this kind of behavior?
2: Yeah. So, one of the things that I see in the evangelical movement, which is much more violent today than it even was in Reagan's day, is that they the the evangelical movement is a, is much more, or has become, particularly its political wing, has become much more anti-stuff than they are pro-stuff. So pro, when we think of pro-morality um, uh, right. and pro-having a good family. That's a good point. They, they yeah. are less that and right. more anti Right people who they consider Muslims, so right. Arabs, anti- Abortion. Abortion. Anti-Semitism. Anti- um, lgbt community. So they more, much more, and in, in, in Trump is not really talking about being pro-things. Right. He's talking about being against a whole bunch of stuff. And the evangelical movement is much more moved by that and much more engaged and on fire about that than they are about Somebody talking about, we need to have good homes right. and good families. Uh, the, and,
3: and you so don't, love him, you don't really hear them <laughs> preaching out the, the, mm-hmm. the gospel of the mount. Mm-hmm. For example, no. the Sermon on the Mount would probably strike some of those people as having come from some radical. That's right. Yeah, uh, that well, that right. Yeah. Which he
1: was, of course. Right. One of the ironies, in the 1960s, the religious groups were in the forefront of the civil rights movement. Right. I remember a Jesuit priest that I knew said, we are a dogmatic faith, and racism is wrong. And now, as you point out, it's become an anti. You know, I was one of the right. lawyers with my former student, Dana Nessel, challenging Michigan's ban on marriage for same-sex couples. And I was at the Supreme Court when we had the arguments. And you would see protesters with sounds like God hates fags. Mm-hmm. Fags burn mm-hmm. in hell. The use of the word anti mm-hmm. is very, very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the other. Mm-hmm. We're, white pe- many white people don't like to see the African-American athletes and entertainers and women having prominent positions. That's right. And as you both point out, Trump has appealed to the anti, That's right. to the fear mm-hmm. of the other. And the evangelicals, as you point out, but they don't care about him as a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say, appoint judges that will overrule Roe v. Wade so women can't have the right to an abortion. Let us discriminate against gay and lesbian people in the name of religion. So what we have is now religion is being used as an anti-weapon against the other. If you wanted a a, a Christian
0: couple in a, behaving in a Christian way, you couldn't do better than the Obamas. Mm-hmm, Nobody mm-hmm. ever alleged that he had any affairs. He got this wonderful wife and these two kids. He was a good oh, father. Oh, I thought
3: he was but... a Muslim from uh, <laughs> Africa. That's right.
0: He yeah. was a Muslim, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And then a, a large wing of
2: that conspiracy theory comes from the evangelical movement. And right? from Donald Trump. <laughs> and from Donald Trump.
3: That's right. Yeah, I, yeah. It, yeah. The, the, the great irony is that these people have totally lost fit. Faith, if you will, Uh, and what I'm pleased with, and I'm hoping we're going to begin seeing more of, is we're starting to see some of the evangelicals speak out and saying, "Wait a second, this is not a Christian, and this is not; these are not Christian beliefs." Uh, We saw the editor of Christian Christian Today, and then another newspaper ran an editorial countering that and the uh, mm-hmm. editor in chief i believe it was he stepped down, he stepped down. Mm-hmm. so we're beginning to see that and and i don't want to tar and feather anybody who is evangelical. No. I know some people who i have wonderful conversations mm-hmm. with who talk about who to them it's not it's not leviticus and the like the who preached all the things that you could get stoned to death for it's preaching the sermon on the mount and unfortunately, it seems to have flipped. The great irony is much of what the evangelical movement is preaching now are some of the harshest things from the old, what they call the Old Testament, right.
0: as opposed to the New. Yeah, you know, you know, I think they've forgotten Billy Graham. We forget this. Billy Graham was really close to Richard Nixon, very partisan. Yes. And When the tape, when the truth came out and the tapes were played, he said that he had made a mistake and he was going to distance himself from politics from then on. His son seems to have forgotten that. Yeah. And so have a lot of other. Yeah.
1: I would like to come back to politics. Right, there was a time in our two-party political system when the Democrats still had more power in the South. Right, when you would talk right. about moderate Democrats and liberal Democrats, you would talk about moderate Republicans like Gerald Ford right. or Bill Milliken and conservative Republicans who were more liberal than
0: some Democrats. Yeah, yeah
1: right. Well, so especially
3: you, on the East Coast. Mm-hmm, right.
1: Mm-hmm. So it was really like you had four. Parties. And now it is hardened. Mm-hmm. Moderate Republicans like Susan Collins are becoming an oxymoron, Right, and they're all pressed. We're going to see this in the impeachment votes. If they vote against Trump, then they risk a challenger in the Republican primary supported by Trump. But if they support Trump, it's going to be harder for them. Especially Susan the the Collins, election.
0: who's in a Democratic state.
1: Right, right um, or... Um, Cory Gardner in Colorado, or Erne, Joe, in, um Tony I there's about a half yeah. dozen Republicans who face competitive races in 2020. But it is so difficult for the parties to get together, because especially the Republicans fear a Republican primary opponent. Mm-hmm. Um, our two-party system, which had really worked pretty well, is different now it is an extremely partisan system we will see it in the 2020 election
3: well you brought up something very interesting and one of the things that has i think hurt the system very badly and the word is primary Mm, we you know it's become a verb we're being primaried exactly Um, the 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 real perhaps one of the worst problems that we face is voter disaffection or disinterest, even more so. Trump would not have won if there was a reasonable turnout. The black community was mm-hmm. not there. Mm-hmm, the young people were not there, both of which you hope mm-hmm. will come out and turn, turn the tide this And nobody time. thought he'd win. Right. Mm-hmm. But even worse, forget November. It is anywhere from, from February on that we have the primaries, and those are so ill-representative. Right. of the actual vote of the American people. Equally bad is the fact that they also determine the, on a national scale. So uh, what was it? Uh, one of, Well, uh, who was it who just quit today? Uh, uh, Julian Castro. Julian Castro. And one of the things he pointed out was that, wait a second, you're asking me to run in a system that's going to be largely determined by votes in New Hampshire mm-hmm, and right. Iowa mm-hmm. and then all the other states. So <laughs> we have totally ill-representative states, two states determine who will likely wind up running
0: as president. Right. And it's
3: it's crazy. Because you guys and what,
0: it's only a month away, and if you don't do well in one of those states, they pull the plug on your money. Yeah, pretty, pretty right. much. And, and it, what it
2: also speaks to is just... Um, the, the foundation of how race is involved in this two-party system and the, the divergence uh, and the extreme um, animosity and uh, unwillingness. There's no such thing as moderate that is meaningful today um, in the political world. And a large part of that is because of this history of race because, the, of course, we know historically the Democrats were solid South. The, the, the Southern um, um, politicians were solidly, in the pocket of the Democratic Party. And we know that that's a, a large part of this is this history of race. African Americans will um, assemble after the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment to the Republican Party, because the Republican Party has this um, platform originally as anti-slavery. And then we get to progressive Democrats by the... Um, New deal Roosevelt era and it's even before that yeah. in Detroit you have Frank Murphy and, you know, who's a progressive Democrat in the 1920s and so we have, so we got this history and African Americans are beginning to come over to the Democratic Party, that'll be solidified in the 1960s during the Civil Rights Movement exactly. with Kennedy and, and, and Lyndon Johnson now you have um, the,
3: the Republicans are the solid South today. It's yeah. starting to <laughs> fracture right? and we can only hope mm-hmm. we're starting to see Texas go purple some people talking about it going blue. Virginia, Virginia has become a Democratic solidified. State. Is We're adds? starting to see mm-hmm. it in a few states. And the thing that really scares me, and we should all be scared about coming forward, is disenfranchisement. Mm-hmm. It, the, the fact that the Supreme Court a few years ago removed removed the protections, mm-hmm. and the Republicans are... Instantly showing right. that they are going to do exactly yeah. what everybody feels. Immediately,
2: Texas begins, passes a law right after that important provision of the, fifth, uh, of the F- Voting Rights Act is uh, removed by the Supreme Court. Immediately, Texas comes up with a new voter um, uh, ID. Um, program yeah. well the
3: the disenfranchisement yeah, yeah. every time they turn around yeah. that if anybody does an investigation they find out that they it's totally mm. imbalanced towards getting rid of blacks mm-hmm. and that there's a significant number of people who are legitimate. Well, well here, voters. here's what
0: scares me, right. and this is a, a sort of a That's higher right. the in the world in which we grew up, we were taught that the, the ideal was a sort of. Plural society, liberal, plural society, toleration for everybody, everybody getting along. Liberal with a small L. Liberal mm-hmm. with a small L, good point. Mm-hmm. And we thought we were getting close to, I thought at the time of Obama's victory, well, this may be the final stage. And, but we seem to be
1: going radically in the other direction. Bob, what do you think? Well, again, this is true. This is reality. I do want to come back to the courts. <laughs> this is my experience as a constitutional lawyer. But to talk about disenfranchisement, there have been favorable court decisions, Pennsylvania Supreme Court on gerrymandering, uh, federal courts in North Carolina on efforts to disenfranchise. And I want to make one point that I think is often overlooked. Having had a long experience in litigating race discrimination cases, I've learned about the importance of demographics. One of the things that scares white voters is the demographics, that we are becoming more and more a nation of color, sort of like old white people are dying off. They're replaced by younger Hispanics and African-Americans. And the change in Texas is due in large part to an increased Hispanic population. So that's another part of fear. It's the others are out, out reproducing us, that's right, that's right. and there's a fear that someday we're going to be a nation of of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's part of it too,
3: and it's enhanced by people like Trump. Yes, right, uh, and others who say, "I can make that work for me politically." There's this calculation, this calculus that is the Republicans have largely embraced right. uh, over the last twenty to thirty years which is to highlight the other. Reagan did it, but it's, it's come to an art form now.
2: And I, I have to admit that I'm not as uh, optimistic as Bob is about the Constitution being able to rein in um, Trump and anybody else like him um, to moving us a, a, away from this dictatorial kind of discussion and this anti-everybody um, who's not like him um world i I am not as optimistic that the Constitution is going to be able to do that in these modern times. i I mean, of course, I would that that would be what I would like to happen, mm-hmm. but I am not so optimistic that we don't end up going the other way i
3: I, I tend to agree with you. We already have seen right. that the Senate, particularly led by McConnell, which i do who I do believe will go down in history, as one of the worst right. he he He's taken positions that are just so
0: irreproachable. Some would argue it's even less excusable for him because he knows the system, he knows how right. it's supposed to work. Right. Trump, Trump to an extent is Homer Simpson in a bad mood.
3: Yeah. <laughs> but, but the other thing that that worries me and I I would imagine Bob you you have to be looking at with concern the race to put in people who are clearly unqualified the Republicans have now rejected the National Bar Association as somewhat of an arbiter of judges and the Supreme Court first of all we saw Mitch McConnell steal a seat from the Supreme Court so that that is something of deep concern Mm -hmm. we basically had a fracturing of his role his responsibility of hearing Mm -hmm. out a nominee and we now have Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg, who we don't know if she's going to make it through mm-hmm. till 2021, January 21. And we know McConnell will not mm-hmm. delay a vote on, mm-hmm. on her replacement right. if need be. So we have people... If she people, dies on January 19th, they'll try to get... Yeah, they would help. try. Uh, so, you know, when we have all this happening, we, we now see three, all three branches of, a, of our government, the stool cannot stand if none of the legs are, none, Mm -hmm. are now planted
1: in democracy. Bob? You're not the first person to accuse me (laughs) of being (laughs) over-optimistic. But, you know, I look at the courts especially. About 90% of the cases that go to appellate courts are easily decided. It is the high-profile, ideological-driven cases... Where the judges do make a difference, when we were litigating marriage equality, with the exception of one Republican appointee on the Seventh Circuit, Richard Posner, all of the Republican appointees said that the ban on marriage for same-sex couples is constitutional. All the Democratic-appointed judges said it's unconstitutional. We lost our case in the Sixth Circuit because we do... We drew two Republican appointees and one Democratic appointee, but it got to the Supreme Court. What is interesting, when you look at the actual results in the Supreme Court, we do find that the judges do have their ideological predilections. There's no doubt about it. But they also have their own views. So you had Chief Justice Roberts joining with the four liberals in saying you can't add a census, a question on citizenship to the census unless you justify it. Actually, I counted about 12 12 cases across the board that were five to four decisions. In six of them, the the five conservatives voted together, but in six others, at least one of them joined the liberals. Um, Nonetheless, you're going to find that the courts on a day to day basis, especially the lower courts, are more likely to reach results that conservatives favor if there is some wiggle room. I mean, the courts work collegially. Uh, the justice of the judges, regardless of their qualifications, have a sense of being a, a federal judge. As I say, maybe I'm overly well, optimistic. Let me ask you all to respond to this. Let's say.
0: We're sitting here on November 9th. A Democratic nominee has won a fairly decisive victory. Democrats have gained five seats and have controlled both the House and the Senate. Would this change things? Would it change the Republican Party, you think, Paul? I think
3: I, I, I well, let me back up for a second. I was on a, a TV show in town not that long ago, uh, and I was on the liberal side, uh, and there was a major state Republican sitting next to me, who I happen to have a lot of respect for. Uh, but it, it bothered me because he said uh, off the air, as soon as we got off, we were chatting, he said, I can't wait for him to be impeached. Hmm. Uh, right. But in on on the show, he was, of course, a very strong Trump. Mm-hmm. So the bad part is the Republicans are clearly showing a will- willingness to accept endless amounts mm-hmm. of, of be- bad oh. behavior mm-hmm. uh, and... The question is what happens if and when, and will they come around? Will we see the the Republican Party reconstituted? Part of that will depend on the results of the vote. A narrow vote, they may stay with them, we could see Don Jr. Running in, in, in another four years, I think if they get soundly defeated, if Susan Collins, if in Arizona with Mark Kelly and so on, if, if the Republicans get their ass whooped, <laughs> uh, I think they will have to look at this and say we're down the wrong path. And I do believe, well, who was it who said recently, uh, if this were, if it were to be a, a, a secret vote Trump would easily be impeached and convicted. Uh, So people hate him. The Republicans, most of them, really do know how awful he is. Uh, And I think that there would be a push to try
1: to reconstitute the party. If it's narrow, I don't think that will happen. I think that Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, who is a complete opportunist, also a former student of mine. Why didn't you fail him? (laughs) It's all your fault, Bob. It is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But um, uh, I think that they would like to get their party back, and you've just suggested that. I think if Trump loses and he's off the scene, they're going to assert themselves, they're going to make a different kind of appeal to the Trump voters. I I think that... Trump now has control of the Republican Party. All the leaders are afraid of him. But if Trump is no longer president, but they hate him, he won't have that ability. They so. may have the same policies, but they will. Well, well here's
3: a question: You just you almost you almost got onto it. I was wondering if you were going to continue. What happens to the Trump voters? Let's say logic and the positives of the the better angels of the American culture as, as I you know, to. to malaprop uh, abraham lincoln what happens if if the better angels take control in 2020's vote what happens to all the hate vote and that is yeah. a lot of what that is so
2: so i that's what that was what i was going to say that only part of what we're talking about what would happen if trump lost is about the the republican leadership only a part of the discussions about them about mitch mcconnell and the senate and republican congressmen and governors a significant part of the discussion ought to be about these Trump voters and this groundswell of people who support him, no matter what. And if he lost, how, how, what would they do? What, how would, what would their reaction be? And I think. I, like, again, I'm I'm less optimistic that they will see the error of their ways. The election and, was stolen <laughs> by those, yeah, those socialists what, and those I, blacks that's, and those that's, Jews. That's, what, that's how I us. see them responding, yeah. that, that, that this is an illegitimate election, that there's no way that Trump really lost. The fake news has said he's lost, and he really has won. And then we'll have something much more than the Al Gore-George um, um, Bush debacle of 2000. We'll have something much more because you'll you'll have some some kinds of conflagrations happening in cities and in towns all over the country, and I don't know how that would
3: shake out. Yeah, if if you drive these people underground— they will still feel more empowered to find ways to express themselves. And that could be through violence uh, and, and a variety of things. Some of them more positive. They may find local organization. Remember, a lot of these people have taken over school boards all over the country. They've taken over towns. So in some ways, they've been effective at getting their agenda through the system, and Trump was a way to get it through the system. Now, you know, everybody talks about the monolith, of the Trump voter I don't believe it is monolithic I think it is opportunistic that they've come together right. <laughs> and there's a lot of different things like I said earlier one of my neighbors out at the cottage we have he just wants to break the system that he think has gotten too fat and and happy uh, I do not believe that Mark is a racist I absolutely do not believe that uh, I know other people who are and when I look and I see the different reasons, there are certain commonalities that come together, but there are also great differences between the various Trump In voters. Some of these,
0: when we talk about the Trump voters, that they're monolith. Well, there's there are people who just voted Republican because that's what they well, do. Well, that's yeah. that's the yeah. point that I wanted to make.
1: Yeah. If we look at the broad sweep of the two-party political system, we see that politics, for the most part, have been center-left or center-right. Right. There have been uh, thirty presidential elections since 1900 with the trump victory the republicans have won 16 the democrats win 114 when it looked like the republicans were ascending then you have the 2018 uh congressional elections so you've got about 20 percent of voters who may be in the middle an interesting statistic uh these are estimates of course But then in the 2016 election, 53% of white women voted for Trump. That's right. Now, there was a big difference in the 2018 election. I honestly think that, as I say, when Trump passes, you will not find a major Republican leader appealing to all the bad things that Trump did. Somebody tweeted the other day. I saw one of these women and said, I voted for Trump because I
0: thought he could drain the swamp and he can't even drain a bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> so, but And we should well, remember, well, this, here's this, the one, I was mean, told, the one statistic before I forget it, to turn it over to Paul. Trump. Got exactly the same percentage of the vote as poor Michael Dukakis. We have to mm. remember that. They're just a third party, in the odd distribution mm. made it. But he did not win a giant landslide despite his lies. No, yeah. I mean, 50,000 right. votes in a few states. Yeah, uh, yeah. And,
3: and they continue right. to try to. I mean, that's one of the reasons. He knows how poorly he really did, mm-hmm. and he has to convince himself a man whose ego cannot accept anything except constant victory has to constantly reinforce right. and lie to himself. That's the worst part is I think his lies really are to himself. Uh, but one, one of the things that I, I want to point out, I think that we have to look at some of the fundamentals of the Trump voter if we if we just look at them as sort of the enemy or whatever, if you're if you're anti-Trump, you're making a big mistake. You have to find out what this this alienation and disaffection is all about. And I look, I'm a boomer. Uh, I grew up in a in New Jersey, and the southern part of the state tended to be more conservative. And I look at a lot of these people. Some are definitely outright racist. Some are easily convinced of fearing the other because they don't know the other. And some are just saying, I got to this stage in my life, I can't get a job because of the way the system is working against me, and so on. Whoever comes in, and that's not just in the the presidency, but in Congress, has got to start looking at the fact that there is disaffection the Bernie boys there was also disaffection which is why some could cross over and vote Trump there is disaffection in the United States There's a sense that the system is not working blacks have a historical reason Jews to some others have all sorts of reasons if whoever follows in whatever party whoever is whoever those faces are if we don't as a nation start to address disaffection the lack of health care the lack of mobility, the lack of the ability to age gracefully and stay employed, gainfully employed and so on, somebody else will tap into this and it could be a Democrat, it could be anybody in four or eight or 12 years. Democracy is being
1: threatened by disaffection more than anything else. Let's pick up on your point, Paul. It's a very good one about disaffection. One of the things that are often asked about candidates, does he or she care about people like me? If we look at Macomb County, where you have a lot of high proportion of working class whites, they voted for Obama twice. They voted for uh, Trump. Hillary did not do very well Mm -hmm. in the terms of you care people like me. She couldn't connect. She came across as elitist and unconcerned. Also, she disregarded the advice of people on the ground in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. You have to uh, come here and campaign. If you think about it, the Democrats lost those three states by about 77,000 votes. The African-American vote was down in Detroit air, down in Philadelphia. I don't think it's going to be down anymore. And I honestly think you're going to see an upsurge in younger people voting, and keep your eye on the white collegiate women. women. Hmm. Not uh, the, the white non-collegiate well, women. That's, a difference.
0: Non-collegiate. That's, that's another one. Yeah, he, never had, he never had the collegiate women. Uh, but
2: yeah, I, yeah, I want to return, want to respond to something Bob said, but also return to this Trump voter issue. Um, so uh, one of the things that we all know is that the black vote was down in 2016, but... But I, I don't cast it that way. It returned to pre-Obama level, mm. and that's uh, what happened. Uh, okay, African Americans yeah. voted at about the same rate that they did when Obama wasn't on the ballot. Right. The rise of that that significant high rise of African American voters was doing o- when Obama was on the ballot. Right. And so, really, what you're getting is the John Kerry level of voting okay. with Hillary Clinton. So you, we, we return to the John Kerry, mm-hmm. Al Gore level of African-American voters for the presidential S- election. So
3: what you are saying, which is very interesting, is that in many ways, blacks, if they get connected with politics,
1: mm-hmm.
3: can control That's the right. state of this nation. Right. It's a historical irony, in isn't the, it? Yeah, Major think,
1: state, yeah. but look at it this way. African-American candidates polled poorly among African American voters. That's right. Yeah, uh, having, be honestly, having dealt mm-hmm. with African American people over the years, my theory was they didn't care whether white people were sincere. Mm-hmm. They only cared if they were serious. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the polling, Joe Biden as a successor to Obama. Polls very well Mm -hmm. among African American voters. Yeah, and so what you are saying, and I think you're absolutely right, is that the Democrats have to think about how well their candidate will do with African American voters. That's right. That's right. Because they can control big states like with high electoral votes, like Pennsylvania or Michigan, uh, states that Democrats needed. Yeah. Well, with, on that
0: note, I want to conclude by asking all of you. I'll start with you, Bob. Who do you think the Democrats will
1: nominate, and what do you think the outcome will be? Again, got to I, put yourself in the line. I, no, no, I, I'm, <laughs> a, I'm old, and I'm a strong, <laughs> uh, and I don't really go for notions like Medicare for all. Right. I like Joe Biden because he is a successor to Obama. He is moderate. He will propose good things like improving the Affordable Care Act. He's not going to tear down the system. He does have an appeal to African-American voters, and I think to others as well. I think we give too much attention to people like Ocasio-Cortez who, who, who happened to win a primary. Uh, uh, and um, I just think that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are not good candidates in a general election. Uh, I think Biden is the strongest. I don't see anybody else merging. So if I'm right about this, you're going to have Biden and Trump. I would suggest that Biden, because obviously nominate a woman, especially a woman of color. I happen to like Kamala Harris. Agreed on that. Uh, A lot Mm -hmm. of people don't as much as I do. Mm -hmm. But I think that's the kind of ticket. And I honestly think, that if you have an African-American vice president, mm-hmm. you may get, with Biden as president, mm-hmm. you may get the levels of vote of the African-American community that Obama got.
3: Mm-hmm. Paul?
1: I would vote for mud. Right.
3: <laughs> okay. I mean, to be honest with you, I don't care what runs. If it's legally and constitutionally capable of running for president.
0: Somebody told me they would vote for a their my cat. I said I don't have a cat. They said I don't care. I'll still vote for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I,
3: I do, unfortunately I don't think they'd qualify the constitutional. Not. Um I I mean I'm an A B B T anybody but Trump uh, voter, and I have done something which is unusual for me. I have really been sitting on the sideline with the with the uh, primaries watching. I have chosen consciously not to favor anybody uh, I want to see what they do I want to see how they perform this is the rare situation where it is a case of who can win right. we have got to stop this because I do believe the constitutional threat of a second term is so great
2: mm-hmm.
3: that I I that agree. overwhelms any of the normal right. questions. Mm-hmm.
2: Jamin? So, so who do I see as um, probably winning this primary is whoever wins the Iowa caucus. So when, because I, I, I really have, I, I agree with Bob that the African-American voters are really have a, a large stake to play in the primaries first and then in the general. There's not many in Iowa. Yeah, that's right. And so what happened in 2008 for Obama was African-Americans were supporting Hillary Clinton. But Obama had an on-the-boots, on-the-ground operation and won Iowa. African-Americans saw him as serious then. Once he won Iowa, they said, oh, well, this guy won Iowa. I mean, that's not South Carolina. That's predominantly white voters. And if white folks will vote for Obama, then we'll vote for Obama. And African-Americans switched their allegiance in the primaries from Hillary Clinton to Barack Obama, who they at first thought could not win. So they switched over. Bernie or Elizabeth Warren or one of the other candidates, because right now um, the African-American voters are primarily with Biden, they would have to have a strong boots on the ground operation and win Iowa and or uh, New Hampshire. And that would make African-Americans rethink their support for Biden. If he's lost two primaries.
3: Can I ask one quick? Can I ask you a quick question? <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. uh, Buttigieg has a certain energy that really connects with a lot of people. Yeah. He's sort of like... He could a, win too, yeah. He's the sort of guy that a yeah. lot of people talk about in yeah. you know, just on the... If, 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 if. Yeah, yeah. And there's a certain Kennedy-esque quality yeah. to him. Yeah, If But he has had a major problem connecting with the African-American community. Yeah. Would that change?
2: Yeah, if he could win both of those. If he could win or or, or really win one of them, but... It'd be cl- not even be close. That could, that because African-American voters, particularly in the primaries, want to vote for a winner. That's but really. Will, but will they then come out in November
3: for Buttigieg? And that's the
2: question. Will they support you in the primary and then come out in large numbers Well, for I think you he would have to
0: take a Harris or a, a yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Stacey yeah. Abrams. Yeah, he'd have, a a, he'd have to pick an African-American. Stacey Abrams would be another Yeah, great he'd have to choice. pick an African-American
2: running mate but do you to do that out.
0: do you think whoever that nominee
2: is can beat Donald Trump? No, I don't. At this point, I don't. I think the Democratic Party is so fractured. You have a Bernie wing of voters who will not vote for anyone but Bernie. Um, I said that in 2008. Right. And, that
0: would, you, yeah, mean, and, you mean 2016.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. I said that in 2016. Yeah. And um, a lot of people didn't agree with me, but there's a wing of them that will not. And if Bernie isn't the candidate, Which I don't. I I, like. I'm I'm really shaky that he will be the candidate. But if he's not the candidate, I see Donald Trump being
1: the winner. Now here, here I disagree. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I I honestly think that the Sanders people, the Warren people, all of them, when this is over, whoever the nominee is, they're not going to sit on their hands. They are going to be anybody but Trump. I honestly think they will be brought into the. We must beat Trump movement. I
0: think, well, I just want to add one other thing because we're, getting, we're running close on time here. But the problem with the challenger, I agree, Pete judge could win Iowa, could win New Hampshire, but then you, you got four little states, and then yeah, on Super Tuesday you've got 14 states. That's right. On the 10th, uh, that's March 3rd. On the 10th, I think you've got about uh, seven big states, and you got a bunch more. It would be very hard for a newbie mm-hmm. to be organized in all those states. And, and uh, it, lightning could come in a bottle, but, you know, that's, a, that's a deal where
1: everybody knows Biden everywhere. That's my point. And I honestly think that... Which
0: is not
3: necessarily
1: good. No, uh, well, there's well, Better than Trump mm-hmm. in terms of Democratic voters. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the Iowa or New Hampshire primaries are going to be all that important, given, as you point out, how, clo- how close in time the other primaries will be. And as you say, everybody knows Biden. Of course, everybody knows Warren, everybody knows Santa. But again, he doesn't seem to, as you say, he's not connecting with African American voters. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I don't see him doing all that well overall. In any event, I think from the standpoint of those of us who are concerned about the future of democracy, it is very important to defeat Trump. On that note, this has all been fascinating, if a bit scary. I want to thank mm-hmm. all
0: our guests for making time out of their busy lives to do this podcast. I also want to thank Judy Greenwald and all those others who have contributed to help keep these podcasts going. If you too would like to help me keep, stay on the air, I'd be thrilled if you could send a contribution to me via PayPal on my blog, lessonberryinc.com, Inc. is an ink pen, or via snail mail to Zing Media Group, 186 North Main Street in Plymouth or just message me on Facebook for more details. Also, again, please check out my blog. It's an ink as an ink pen, as I said. Click the button, subscribe to both my podcast and other writing. Listen to more episodes, tell your friends, and make suggestions. This is Jack Listen with the Politics and Prejudices podcast. See you all again soon. More than 45 years ago, when I was still a college student, our country was gripped by a crisis unlike any other in our history. But a President of the United States who, it turned out, had lied to the people and obstructed justice. After months and months of national stress, indisputable proof came to light that he'd done these things. The nation held its collective breath. Then, congressmen from that President's own party went to see him and said, in so many words, that he had to resign or they would impeach and remove him from office. He did indeed resign. Gerald Ford, our new president, told us, My fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. Our Constitution works. Our great republic is a government of laws and not men. We believed him. What happened gave me new faith that the system did work. But well, That was a lifetime ago. The bad president, who was, of course, Richard Nixon, didn't really challenge the system. He just lied about what he'd done. And when that smoking gun was produced, virtually everyone, including Nixon himself, realized he had to go. We live in a different world today. 20 years ago, President Bill Clinton was impeached in a partisan opera buffet maneuver in which everyone knew he wouldn't be convicted. No matter what the official grounds, everyone suspected he was really being impeached for lying about extramarital sex. But at least he was deeply embarrassed and his fellow Democrats were angry. That doesn't seem to be the case with Donald Trump or the Republicans. Nobody, by the way, had to be an investigative whiz to find the smoking gun in the Donald Trump impeachment saga. He voluntarily provided it himself in the form of his transcript of his quid pro quo phone call, among other things, and said, in essence, so what? Nor is the attitude of Congress the same as it was during the Nixon impeachment hearings. Back then, while there was a partisan aspect to it all, once the White House tapes provided clear proof that the president had obstructed justice, Virtually the entire Republican delegation demanded he leave. It's also worth knowing that it's also worth noting, rather, that two years before that, Nixon had scored one of history's biggest landslides, winning more than 60% of the popular vote, becoming the first president to win 49 of the 50 states. Donald Trump, of course, decisively lost the popular vote and just squeaked in. Yet the Republicans in Congress have marched in virtual lockstep with him in a way that reminds me of the way Soviet officials used to follow Stalin's decrees. I find this especially frightening. I have enormous intellectual as well as professional and personal respect for Professor Bob Sedler. He believes our democracy is not in serious peril because as he put it, presidents come, presidents go, but the Constitution endures. I hope he's right, but the Constitution only matters as long as those in power, as well as the people who are governed, respect and believe in it. I'm Jack Lesenberry, thanks for listening. Hope I'll see you next time.